Albert Einstein once said, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. On this week's episode of Goat Gab, Cameron and Laura talk about common mistakes in raising dairy goats and share some ideas on how you can avoid them. All right, welcome back to another episode of Goat Gab. This is Cameron here. And this is Laura. Welcome. All right, we are back this week, and we're going to be touching on these mistakes we make on the farm. And I can guarantee each and every dairy goat breeder has made them. Um, But we're going to go over some common ones here, and hopefully you can learn um, not only from some of our mistakes, but some of the mistakes that um, some of the rookies make as well here. What's going on in your world, Cameron, before we get going on that wonderful topic? Yeah, it's it's been a busy weekend here. Um, yesterday, we pulled blood on some of the does. I think we did about 17. Uh, my fiance has gotten significantly better at pulling blood three years into vet school than her first year of vet school. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad she's learning something there, as costly as that school is. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> In addition to that, we uh, we cleaned some pens as well, so we got out the skid steer, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on when we talk about kind of setup and some of the mistakes that can happen there. Uh, we did some general farm fixes um, as well, um, and one thing my dad also did, also did was uh, he did used his preg checker as well, even after we pulled blood, and we're going to send that blood in obviously tomorrow. But generally, we use a, a motor oil when we put oil on our preg checker here. Um, but he seemed to not have found that. So he managed to find the only oil in the house, which was extra virgin olive oil. So I, I was in the bar and I was like, what is this extra virgin olive oil doing out? And he's like, oh, yeah, I used that on my break checker. I was like, oh, my God, do you not understand how valuable extra virgin olive oil is? <laughs> and so now your barn smells like an Italian restaurant? I, I wish it did. It mostly smells like <laughs> smells like freshly cleaned pens more than an Italian <laughs> restaurant. But I was like, oh my god, what's he doing? Uh, Hopefully, your mom your mom was okay with that. Of course, right? I don't think she knows yet. So <laughs> I don't think she listens to the podcast either. So she might not find out until she goes to cook with something that needs extra virgin olive oil. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but on the personal front, I think we set a wedding date, so that's kind of cool. Are you going to share it here or just let everybody guess? Um, uh, when are we releasing this? Uh, I, we're going to be changing the release dates Tuesday. We'll go back over that at the end of the podcast. But um, by then, I should have the deposit paid on the venue uh, September 24th, 2022. That sounds like a wonderful time of year to get married, Cameron. I'm so excited for you guys. Yes, we we are excited as well. So, uh, yeah, yay. Uh, no, I, I'm I'm thrilled and excited and uh, glad that it's out of the way. It'll go by so quickly getting to that point. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, also on the goat front here, we uh, we had our last milk test, so we are wrapped up for 2020 uh, DHIR. So that's that's good. That's awesome. Very good. Yes. And it was funny because we we, we did. A bunch of them came back, two of them came back into heat, and those goats milked the most, actually, on DHIR, were the two that came back into heat. So um, I guess that's something you live and learn. Yeah, usually people are thinking that once they start cycling pretty heavy, those milk production, um, their production drops. So that's good to know. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Laura, what's going on on your farm? Well, um, probably like it was there in Illinois, it was absolutely beautiful this weekend. Like mid-70s, gorgeous sunshine. Um, these are the days that make you fall in love with Missouri and forget about the <laughs> horrible humid summers or, you know, the really cold winters. So um, I had all three of my girls home this weekend and we uh, got out the ultrasound machine and attempted to do some ultrasounding on goats. I'm just going to say um, you all who do this frequently make it look so easy because I'm like, Hmm, is that a bladder or is that a baby goat? What am I looking at? So that was that was quite interesting. Thank goodness my brother-in-law Stanton stopped by and helped me out a little bit. And I did see some some uh, baby goats. So one of them, I'm afraid I saw triplets or maybe quads. So I'm hoping I'm it's just user error there. I really don't want quads again from her, but um, it was kind of fun. It just a steep learning curve. I think I'm going to get it out next weekend and have my list of due dates and, and try to make some sense between what I'm seeing and what I think I'm seeing. So um, we'll pull blood on them eventually anyway, just to double check what we're seeing, but I'm hoping it's a, a fun diagnostic tool that maybe I can get, it, get it down eventually. So, yeah, no, that'll be fun. And uh, well, we've, we've talked about driving over to, um, we have some family in Kansas and maybe we can swing by if we come over there in December and, and see some stuff and Catherine can help help you on that because she said she wanted to at least work and see what an ultrasound machine is and whatnot and how it works and she kind of well, knows but yeah that would be awesome um you know I've got probably three does left to breed their kids okay and uh, looking forward to a buck collection in a couple of weeks so um you know on the work front for me are finally in my community we're really seeing that covid surge that they keep saying was going to come up so um you know i'm just always you know be careful be safe uh praying for everybody who's been hit with it and and uh eager for us to get out on the other side of this and get over this next mountain so yeah absolutely it was a it was a weird it was a weird week in the country here and and not only with um, COVID cases and, and other national media news. But um, one thing I did want to talk about here was we're seeing a, a kind of a shift in the social media communities um, and people are, are jumping off the Facebook bang, bandwagon and, and switching to another site. Um, and the main site I'm seeing them want to switch to is a, uh, a site called Parlor. Um, and I think that has some real implications in the dairy goat community because Facebook is a highway of information for dairy goat breeders. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think in another way, you know, we've mentioned before, um, you know, the, the sadness and seeing the last, that last issue of United Caprine news coming up, but I think probably a lot of other printed publications are finding the same thing that social media has uh, taken over that whole for people getting you know who are hungry for for news and to see what other farms are doing and and things like that so it'll be interesting to see if parlor can take that away from facebook yeah i um, I, I think it'll be interesting but i think it's it's something that you know as as people that want to market their animals you really have to consider because um as both a, a marketer of animals and both a consumer of animals and content on on facebook of dairy goat um we'll call it uh dairy goat content um, that's something you need to consider if you're going to switch over to parlor is, am I going to see the dairy goats that I want to see from people and you're leaving Facebook 
And also, am I going to maybe miss something that I didn't see because I'm not on Parler or I'm not on Facebook from a breeder and I missed out on an opportunity to to really see something? Because um, as we all know, Facebook or social media for the for most of us is where we find information first on goats. And, you know, I have you had a chance to look at Parler yet, Cameron? I have not. I haven't either. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, I always for, already feel like that Facebook is such a time suck for me. I mean, it just it just eats up so much time. It makes me nervous to think about adding another platform in. And like you, I don't know that I just want to totally abandon Facebook and jump jump to another platform. So it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, and I think time will tell um, whether the the what's going to happen with Parler and uh, we're going to see a shift or not. And it's just something that I I thought was interesting, and I think that people uh, listen to the podcast find interesting and and some things to consider um, if you're making the move to a different social media site. I personally would be sad to see a lot of the people that that even though I've never met them face to face, I almost feel like there's there's a family on Facebook, you know. Um I've you know, I've seen them through marriages and new babies being born and and you know, watched baby goats grow up into being beautiful champions and I know it sounds maybe kind of crazy to say that, but I would be really sad uh, to see the goat community fractured amongst multiple social media platforms because you know i feel like that there's so so much of a community already on facebook yeah i agree and that's that's something to ponder and consider as we continue to navigate this um interesting world we live in absolutely yeah so uh, Um, knowing that we think we want to move all move along here to our topics the mistakes we make let's jump into that yeah both feet yeah because usually when i make a mistake it's with both feet solidly planted in that mistake. Yes, I, I agree. Um, as someone who's um, very similar to that when I make a mistake, and it's uh, it's hard to admit, but uh, we all make them, and that makes us human. But um, what are some mistakes, Laura, starting out when you, when you start into dairy goats? Or, Laura, I know you started back into dairy goats that you might have made or you've seen other people make. So, as you mentioned, I did start back into dairy goats. And in a lot of ways, that was that was a huge blessing. I, I had a great advantage because I had made so many of these mistakes as a young adult when I, when I got into breeding. So I knew when I started out in dairy goats, okay, I am not, I am not going to do this. I'm going to avoid this mistake. And and that did make things a lot easier. That doesn't mean that I haven't made mistakes, you know? So one of the big mistakes that I think people make starting out is that they just don't have a clear goals in mind of what they hope to accomplish with their dairy goat herd. Now, obviously that can evolve over time, but I think it's helpful if you know in the beginning what you want your emphasis to be. So like, for example, as you mentioned, Cameron, um, when I first started out back into dairy goats the second time, I had some experience behind me and I knew that my main reason for wanting to get into dairy goats was to show with my daughters. So, um, you know, I started out with animals that that they could have some success in showing right off the bat because they were really young. I think they were, well, I think the oldest one was maybe 12 or 13 at the time. So, you know, I, I wanted them to have something that they could learn with and they could grow with, but that they were going to have some success with so that they were inspired to keep on going. So um, I think if, if you just start collecting goats and just have just have a few, but don't really know what you want to do with them. It makes it harder to make any progress. Yeah, 
I agree there. And I, I echo a lot of those sentiments when we started the Sable breed, which uh, kind of an accident, um, as many people know, but it's really turned into something we're super passionate about now. Um, and we really didn't know what we were doing when we started acquiring pieces. Um, you know, we bought some goats and we, but we didn't really have a plan. We brought in a herd sire we liked and, and, but we didn't have goals, you know? And I think as you get more time into your dairy goat project, you start to see where your goals are. You start to be able to develop some goals because you don't know what you have in a base layer yet. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and again, as I said, it, yes, you're right. It does evolve over time. Um, you know, it's a little easier or maybe not easier. Maybe it's a little clearer. If you know off the bat that your main reason for having dairy goats is for family milk production, um, then, then, you know, you're not maybe going to spend as much time looking for uh, the show quality animals or, animals that have certain traits that are valued in the show ring, but maybe not so much on your own farm for milk production. And that's okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but, but um, plan something out, have some goals. You know, I'd, I'd like to accomplish this. I'd like to move forward this. And that helps. I think it help, can help you avoid those pitfalls of just being a goat collector and not having a plan in mind. Yeah. And, and going along those lines of goat collecting, um, you don't want to get too big too fast um and that that's a great way to just lead to burnout and you're not having fun with this project anymore you invest a lot of time and a lot of money to that and managing 40 50 goats um that might not be all the same quality that you would hope to keep when you think about those goals is, is not enjoyable i think though cameron sometimes it's hard to avoid that um, thought that the more animals you have, the better you're going to do. Um, and on the one hand, yes, if you have more animals to select from, again, looking at it from a show, a show perspective, if you have more animals to choose from, you can pick out more winning animals. But I can tell you, it's almost the opposite. If you can keep a smaller herd with that higher quality, there they're going to look better and you're going to do better with them. I, that's my thought on it. Every time that I have made those hard cuts and they are hard, it is hard to sell those animals and you just, you know, you're breaking your heart because you're letting some animals go that you think have so much potential or, but it's so-and-so's last daughter or, well, I know that they injured their udder and they're never going to be shown again, but I think they're going to be a good animal. <laughs> when you make the decision to let those animals go, and um, don't keep everything, the good animals that you do keep look 200% better. Yeah. Yes, I agree. But I will say, as, some, as someone that's been there before, as someone that's had five senior kids in the class or six senior kids in the class at a national show or, you know, five yearling milkers or, or, or whatnot, there, there is an advantage in keeping that because you do have a lot of genetic diversity but as goats get older and they tend to change, um, you you tend to keep less of that breed, so you're less of that number. So I look back to the of the Alpine gate classes, more like second and the other one. We had you know probably ten goats in the top ten uh, between the three classes. So that was a, an incredible incredible time. But then we had the five yearling milkers, which we showed all or six of them. We showed six of them at the national show. 
five of them made it to the ring. Um, and then we had three dry yearlings as well. But then as two-year-olds, we only had four of them. So there, there is an advantage because of the genetic diversity. But at the end of the day, I, I really think that having that many goats can be really um, scary for a lot of people, um, especially on all the same age, because they're going to compete against each other. Well, and that's, you just have to know in the back of your head when you keep animals like that, numbers like that, that day of reckoning is down the road, I think. <laughs> you know, when, you, yeah. when, you, when yeah. you have to make those tough cuts, you have to be willing to do that. Yeah, I will agree there. Um, also, on the lines of kind of moving too fast here, is get it more than one breed. Laura, I know you focus specifically in one breed with a little bit of spawners on the side. Um, you, you know, I, I really think that's, you know, getting more than one breed can be good because it allows, if you have children, to for them to invest in their own specific breed, um, myself included. That's why I got very interested in the Alpine breed. Well, my twin brother got very interested in the La Mancha breed. Um, but at the same time, when you bring in those two breeds, they're competing for resources as well. Around my house, we laugh that if you have two breeds, you really have three breeds because you're probably going to end up with some experimentals. Unless you have better yeah. fences, we'll, which we'll get to later on. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it is it is kind of nice to have more than one breed, as you said, when you have kids showing. But um, I don't think it's something you think that you have to do. You know, maybe each child has their own line of, of a specific breed or whatever. I don't I don't feel like anybody should feel pushed into getting more than one breed of goat um, because they have children that are showing. Um, there are definitely pros and cons to it, but I would say, and you can argue on this, Cameron, if you want, because you have a lot more experience than I do, than I do. But I would say it makes a lot of sense to get really comfortable with and achieve some of the goals you've set out with your first breed before you bring in that second breed. Yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. And a lot of times that second breed is often a, or an, an accident or a gift or, or you know, there was a good deal at a sale in the state of Illinois and she just happened to be pregnant and then she turns out really nice and all of a sudden you have a mantra. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, or you win a raffle or a, you win a raffle kid. Yeah, and she, and she turns out to be a yeah. national champion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's the Sable story there. So <laughs> Um, sometimes, you know, you specifically say, well, I've really been admiring this breed, so I think I'm going to get some, um, other times that just happen to be circumstance or good deals. And, and you're like, okay, let's, let's, let's do that. But re I really, I, I agree with you, Laura, is getting comfortable with your first breed, um, accomplishing some of your goals and then being able to translate all of those mistakes you made in your first breed to help propel your second breed even further. Along with that. I think another mistake that's common to make, and especially in this day where we're almost in an information overload, and we do have Facebook, we do have other social media sites, we do have Google and you know YouTube and everything, is thinking that you don't need a strong mentor in your dairy goat project. But I think that's a huge mistake that people starting out making, making is not finding a mentor to help them um, even if it's somebody who's across the other side of the country, but that you can turn to when you have questions or problems or whatever, I think a mentor is so important. Yeah, I, so I'll take this a different perspective here because my, obviously 
for those who know me, my mentor is my dad. He's taught me everything. He was taught by Paula Walker and Brian Heiser and all of the old gang that used to run in the state of Illinois. So he's had some phenomenal mentors along the way there too. Um, Randy Hoach is another one as well. Um, but I look at my, my fiance situation and she really did, doesn't have a mentor. She kind of was able to use her gift of gab um, to understand and, and weasel information and then use her general curiosity um, and, and nutrition and, and feed rations and kind of talking, just talking to other people, not really any formal type of mentorship, but just being able to ask the right questions in order to get where she is. And that's definitely another way to do it. Don't, I guess kind of the main thing is whether you have one person you go to or multiple people, don't feel like that you have to do it all on your own. Make sure that you've got, got sources that you can turn to because I will tell you, you might think you know it all and something will come by and smack you upside the head and you realize, ah, I don't know. I don't know how to get through this. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and thinking about having those people, it's also important to have a good support network behind you that might not be interested in the goats, but um, have creating that family buy-in, which for me was, Hey, because you live here, part of your quote unquote rent is taking care of the goats. And this is your, forced 4-H project, which is okay with me. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and, but it was, it was someone to help there uh, for my dad. Um, but just really having family buy-in is super important. Right. And then, you know, even if you think I'm fine doing it by myself, I don't need anybody else. This is my project and I want to do it all alone. That is great. But what if you get hurt and you're in the hospital or what if you have to go out of town on an emergency or, what if you want to go to a show, but you can't take all of your animals? It's really important to have somebody back there in the wings who doesn't mind shoring for you if you need it, or if you're really sick and you need some help, just have that backup, whoever it is. If it's your family, re remind yourself that um, they don't have to do that for you and, and be kind and say thank you and, and maybe buy them dinner or something nice afterwards. The same thing with neighbors and, and, you know, sometimes Sometimes that support can come from FFA or 4-H members who can step in and help you out when you need it. And they may enjoy using you as a mentor while you are uh, using them for labor when you need to be gone. <laughs> but, but there's good ways to find that backup support that you need, even if your family is just like, uh -uh, I'm not doing the goat thing for you. Yeah, no, I, that's really important to have when you're starting out there. Um, one thing that I've noticed, especially in today's age where we kind of we call, call it instant gratification, you know, we want to be at the top right now. Um, and some people have taken that to a whole new level where they focus on marketing their goats. So they have the pretty signs, they have the banners, they have the goat coat, maybe the embroidered goat coats, they have the good Facebook page, um, instead of actually being able to manage their goats. I know a lot of people that manage their goats a lot better than they market their goats. And I, I personally, I would like to think that uh, my girlfriend's one of them because um, we just got into a fight over marketing the other day. Oh, I bet that was interesting, Cameron. Yeah, well, it all stemmed, from, we're, we're gonna go down a rabbit hole here, but it all stemmed from me borrowing a buck from her as part of our strategic partnership between the two farms. And with that strategic partnership, I posted it on our Facebook page and immediately someone contacted her asking for to buy semen out of that buck. And she's like, well, how come people don't do that normally? And I'm like, 
because we've invested a lot in marketing and building up a following on Facebook. And you're just becoming a bystander of that. But instead of putting time in marketing, she's putting time in management of her goats. And it really shows. Well, and I think, I think that's a really good point to make. You know, you, you would hate to think that um, there's no substance behind the bling, but that's also an easy thing to do on Facebook. And, and yes, in life, sometimes there's a little bit of fake it till you make it, but that doesn't hold a lot of water in breeding animals. So, you know, the, the flashy, flashy marketing and things like that are great, but, you know, it's more important to have something behind it people are going to be disappointed if, if all you are is a bit of bling and nothing, nothing substantial there. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Along those lines as well, impulse buys, um, you know, maybe you have a goal and, and you've reserved some goats, but um, you know, you see something on Facebook and you think it's really nice, but it, it might not pan out at the end. Um, I generally like to make a plan and stick to that plan. And I've, I've repeatedly told my fiance that um, if she sees a goat on Facebook, she wants to buy. Yeah, that's great. But what about all these other goats that you have? And, and where's your plan that you have for this right now? Well, and, you know, it's easy to think, oh, it's not that expensive. You've got to remember the cost of the goat is usually the least expensive part of owning that goat. You've got years and years of vet bills and feed and and hay and breeding and everything ahead of it. So if it seems like a good a good deal, but it's not a good fit for your herd, you've probably just wasted a bunch of money. Yeah, I agree with you that. Yeah, uh, yes. One one story I'll tell here is we we my dad we were in the Colorado sale and I think it was the mid late two thousands and um, there was a Lamanche we really wanted. There were two Lamanches in the sale we really wanted. There was a really good genetic arm. We wanted to bring it in, but it went too high, um, which was okay. That's fine. Um, but my dad had a little too much, I think, the wine and cheese, so the story goes. Um, and he bid on another La Mancha in the sale. And that was definitely an impulse buy. And that uh-huh. and that impulse buy did not pan out. Um, almost to the point where we shipped her to our commercial guy. And then we saw our commercial guy a couple of years later. And he told her that he shipped her to another person. So... Um, the cert- and she just happened to be in the trailer because she was getting picked up at a goat show we were at. So we, we saw her again, and it was like the circle of life continued. Oh, goodness. Well, and those, those sales, those are fun. Yeah. Whether you're bidding in person or you're sitting at home by yourself in your bedroom with your laptop on your on your lap and you're bidding that way. It's pretty hard to say stop <laughs> when, when uh, you know, this it, it's a lot of fun. But um, whether it's at a Colorama or a Spotlight sale or, um, you know, it's an animal that you see on the Facebook, you're totally right. If you don't have a plan for that animal and it is truly just an impulse buy, this is not a, you know, you really have to think, think twice and think hard about whether or not it's going to be a good fit for your herd and, and um, if it's something you want to take a chance on. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, moving right along here from kind of mistakes starting out to breeding mistakes here. Laura, what are some of your thoughts on some of the breeding mistakes that you've seen people do and maybe you've seen on your farm as well? So this is my number one breeding mistake that I see people do. And a lot of times it's um, the newer breeders to it 
but this is a mistake that I have made too, is using homebred bucks in your own breeding program before your quality of animals warrant that. I'm not saying don't ever use a homebred buck because I know that you do that very successfully in your herd, Cameron. But I will tell you, there have been only two or three homebred bucks that I have that I've kept and used extensively in my herd because I don't think I'm quite there yet. Um, I'm working towards there and I have some that I've kept AI, you know, just a little bit of semen to use down the road. But I think you have to have to really decide if the quality of animals that you are breeding warrants keeping that, keeping your own buck to breed widespread in your herd. Yes. I agree with you on that. And maybe it comes from a little later or, you know, you, you've had, you really need a, you know, a, a superstar animal that has this specific trait that you want to bring back into your herd. Um, but a lot of people, they don't have that. And they're just using the homebred buck because they see it as either a way to conserve resources, or maybe they really like this goat and we really want more to look like her. Um, but, but, it sometimes it's just way too soon to even consider that. Right. And, you know, you have to think about the facts. I mean, for me, my, my thought every time I use a buck is, do I look at that buck's dam and want that to be my herd? You know, do I want every animal in my herd to look like that? And if I can't say that, then I'm not ready to use that animal as a buck. And I've had some beautiful does over the years that I really loved and I've had fun showing them and they've, and they've been nice, but I'm not ready to have, I, I still think that I can make enough improvement bringing in outstanding outside lines, um, either through AI or through purchasing a special buck that I'm, I'm, that's where I'm looking at. So, you know, you will know when the time comes that you can start using your own home red box, but don't do it too early. I think that's, I think that can be really detrimental to progress in your herd. Yes. And, and along the line of bucks too. And I think we're going to talk a lot about bucks in this, in this um, segment here is, is keeping slash selling too many bucks. So um, keeping too many bucks intact can be, detrimental um and can take back years of genetic progress not only for your herd but other people's herds um you know laura you've you've seen that facebook chart that gets circulated every you know year around kidding season i have that chart printed and put in my book with pedigrees because (laughs) to me it's hard sometimes to not make this amazing pedigree breeding and then sit back there and say, look, should this buck be sold as a buck? No, probably not. Um, it, you're right. It's so it, especially those bucks that you think it's just going to be the next great breeding or uh, those, those wonderful AI buck bucks that maybe you made that breeding hoping for a doe kid and everything that's born has the wrong equipment on them. <laughs> Yeah, you really, even if it's an AI kid, you still need to consider, is this something that's worth using as a buck, either for my herd or somebody else's herd down the road? Um, You know, and just not picking on our Nigerian dwarf friends, but believe me, just because it's pulled, blue-eyed, or moon-spotted doesn't mean it should get to keep its jewels. Yes, yes, I I agree with you on that. Um, So, yeah, that's something to consider in breeding mistakes there. 
um, and, and just recycling bucks. Laura, you had this one. What What do you mean by recycling there? Well, you know, sometimes sometimes it's easy, or at least maybe it's just something that I've done because I have such a small herd. Um, I'll use a buck. Um, I'll get daughters out of them. Then I'll stick them stick them off to the side, not use them, and then I'll bring them back in again. Um, you know, are you really going to make genetic progress doing that, or you know, um, is it time to recycle him? Is he better recycled by collecting him and then moving him on down the road? Uh, you can get too inbred and too tightly bred, and it's hard to get yourself out of that corner sometimes. Is kind of my thought on yeah, that. Yeah, no, I agree, and that's something that um, you know, for those in the alpine world, we owned Pleasant Grove Super Saga, four-time premier sire of the national show. We it was hard to move on from Saga after. Um, years of success with him and, and beautiful daughters and whatnot. I'm trying not to toot my own horn here, but we, we kind of burned ourselves into the corner for a little bit, in my opinion. Um, my dad might say differently, but, um, you know, we were trying to find a complimentary piece to him and we could never find it. So what we ended up doing was going back on some of the, you know, two generations down, maybe I saw a granddaughter and then had a daughter and maybe it was, you know, maybe and then we, Bread Saga again, so you would see Saga a couple times in that pedigree there, um, and, and sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, that's just something, that's one of the things that keeps breeding interesting, putting a positive yes. spin on it. It's also one of the things that makes breeding, makes you pull your hair out, but, um, you know, not every buck is a good buck to line breed or inbreed on. And uh, you have to be willing to pull the plug when you say, oh, nope, this was a bad yeah. idea here. Cameron, you had, you had mentioned something when we were coming up with our plan for today about not using two straws of semen when you're AIing. Can you explain that yeah. a little bit more? So we used to actually, for the longest time, we would put two straws of semen in a goat when we were AIing them. I really don't know where, uh, and that was something my dad and his mentors taught him, um, along with, for those of you that are friends with Facebook of me, sniffing the straw of semen, making sure the doe does that guaranteed 100% AI success rate. That's not a proven fact, but um, <laughs> but it's something we do. Um, but we used to use two straws of semen at the same time. We didn't even, um, you know, try to even split our timings or anything. Um, and we wasted a lot of semen over those um 15 to 20 years that we were using two straws of semen. The only time it's appropriate is when there is a sperm quality issue. As a, a bad, a bad, I'll call myself a bad example for AI because we don't even own a microscope. Um, so we don't even look at sperm quality issues. Um, so that to me, unless, so if there's a sperm quality issue, that's when it's okay to use a second straw. Um, but if there isn't one, go ahead and just use the one straw. Yeah. Or breed it tonight with one straw. And if she still seems like she needs to be bred again in the morning, I think it's okay to use that second straw the next time, but yeah, dumping two in at the same time when, when you're not suspecting bad semen, that does seem, well, I guess you ensured that there was lots yeah, of swimmers. I, yeah. To get I mean, one of the AIs right. we did, I, I don't, I don't know. We, we did this year and she's on like 35 days now. Um, we put two straws of, of, of saga. So we go back to saga there um, in her. Um, I did a straw and then my dad, or my dad did a straw first and I did a straw um, and she hasn't recycled yet. So for me, that's, I have a hundred percent AI conception rate this year. 
That's fabulous. Awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, thinking about there and, and, and going along semen and, and buck collection here. And, and one thing I have on this list is um, collecting bucks that don't have genetic value. Um, I've seen a lot of people pull the trigger early. They might get a buck kid collected. Um, you know, some people say they do it for insurance or, or other things there, but then that buck's daughters don't turn out to be anything. And then you just wasted however much it costs to collected him um, down the road, you know, uh, on crappy straws. I might have a little okay. bit of a different yeah, perspective on that. Um, so the, the foundation dough that I used uh, to base my Alpine herd on, her sire had just a really high percentage of outstanding daughters and had a really neat pedigree. And I was told the story that when he was a yearling buck, um, his owners put him into a pen with an older buck. Uh, they did what bucks usually do during rut season. They jumped up and crashed heads and it broke the neck of this younger buck. And they never had him collected. And his value became very apparent within a couple of years of his death when his daughters turned out to be pretty outstanding. So I've always been of the thought that if a buck is worth using, he's probably worth collecting at least 20 to 30 straws in case something like that does happen. Now I am going to agree with you on the fact that too many bucks are collected. And when those bucks turn out to throw swingers or bad problems, the next step should be to grab all of that semen and dump it down the drain because you don't want to send that to somebody else. I have horrible thoughts that I'm going to kick the bucket someday and my family is going to try to market all this semen. And if there's bad stuff in there, I don't want people saying, Oh my gosh, <laughs> she had all these bucks that weren't worth anything. So, you know, I believe that for me, I like having that insurance in the tank in case, in case something happens with that. Um, I think maybe it's a little bit different with uh, not to start a debate here at all. French Alpines are a smaller gene pool at this point in time than um, what we see in American Alpines. So I would hate to uh, not collect a buck that might be really outstanding. Having said that, it, I don't mind at all losing that $200 collection on 30 straws of semen if I have to dump it down the road. Okay, and this is the difference of opinions that we have, and that's perfectly fine with me. <laughs> well, you know, so so when I rescue, when I when I end up having semen out of this buck that's amazing, Cameron, you can just okay, come okay. see me about it. Okay, definitely. You, okay. <laughs> uh, one thing as well in breeding mistakes we see a lot of is, is using, we, we called it in one of our first episodes, the flavor of the month. Um, you know, using that buck, buck oh, gosh, that's, that's yeah. hot right now. And, and we could get into each breed and everybody has their own flavor of the month, but what, we're not going to list them and we're not going to talk about each specific breed flavor of the month and whatnot. But a lot of those flavor of the month, they, they, you'll go and you'll go buy semen on them and it generally will be pretty high dollar for dairy goat semen. Um, and, and you go and you're kind of not following your plan that you set in mind. However, sometimes might be a plan right. with that if you want to keep a buck kid or, or, or whatnot but um you know using the flavor of the month without you know just 
impulse buying it, that's a big breeding mistake in my opinion. Well, and especially if you don't know what that flavor of the month is going to do, you know, he might be the buck of the month because um, he had five daughters that topped their class at the national show last year. Okay. That's pretty stinking impressive. On the flip side of that, you have to know what he was bred to and why those daughters were outstanding. And there's not a perfect goat born yet, though I think I have her in my pasture. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, there's not been the perfect goat born yet. Um, so you, you need to know, you need to have your blinkers off and, and or blinders off and see what bad things that that buck throws too before you jump on that buck of the month bandwagon you know there might be reasons to use him but don't use him just because everybody else has used him it's awesome to use a buck that is a four-time uh national show premiere sire nod yeah. to you cameron um but if you don't know how that buck's going to cross with your animals or you don't know what things you can expect out of that buck you know you're you're really playing with fire there yeah and i think one thing to avoid that is talking to people so if somebody will pick on saga because he's out he's limited out there right now i think we i don't i'm not going to put a number on how many straws we have left of him but it's, it's not as many as i would like um but uh talk to the breeder of that that's using that book so if i was using in french or in alpines if i was using shining moon x-rated i would want to talk to scout by jennifer by and get information on what he really improves before I go ahead and see, oh my God, we, I know he has 24 champion daughters and um, all, they're, they're all really nice for me. Facebook pictures. I should use them on my best of. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, that kind of leads me to the next point in our list too. Overuse of AI. Um, AI is so much fun. And if you are proficient with getting animals settled, it's just kind of like the whole world is opened up to you. But I also think you have to be careful with what you're doing because using one or two sires on your herd can really set type for you in the animals that you've got in your herd. And I think that if you overuse AI, you can run the risk of really ruining that if you don't know what you're yes, doing. Yes, I, I agree with that there as well and that kind of leads us along to the next point is, is using semen too fast but on the flip side waiting too long to use you mean like the five straws of cane that i have yeah in my tank? do we want to talk about that we can sure my point being um you know it uh, new era's cane was an amazing buck that had fantastic successes in the alpine breed in the 80s and 90s and then cameron your family has had a lot of success with cane after that point as well and um i've i've used him ai a couple times and didn't get any conceptions and my daughters are like mom you are not <laughs> gonna use that we are not gonna let you use that buck anymore not because he's a bad buck but because they feel like he's not going to fit well with what we have. And I want that semen to go to somebody who's going to appreciate him because otherwise he's going to rot in my tank for another 15 years. So not using semen that should be used is definitely. Yeah. And on the flip side there, I, on the flip side, I picked up and we'll, we'll switch breeds here. I picked up some Chippewa or excuse me, um, KBRC Chippewa semen. Um, Chippewa, Chippewa has done some amazing herds in the or amazing goats um, in uh, Anna Thompson's uh, 
heard uh, legendary. I ended up, it took me as long to figure that out. Legendary, including Sire, the national champion, and one of my favorite goats, which is Winterberry of hers. Um, but I've repeatedly told my girlfriend, let's not use that too fast. She's like, well, let's do it right now. Let's do it. Let's do it this one right now. I'm like, I don't think you have the right goat yet to use this on. It's two straws. It was really expensive. You know, we need to wait for the right goat and not just burn it right now. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that does come with time, doesn't it, Cameron? You have to, you have to learn what that buck's going to do. And, and do you have, do you have the structure in your herd? Do you have the things that that buck is going to cross with to make it worth spending that kind of money to use that yeah, semen? Yeah, I absolutely. Really picked up that semen on an impulse buy, so I'm not even taking my own advice. But we kind of have a plan now with it. Well, and that fits in real neck, real well with the next point that I have. Um, several years ago, it, and maybe this is because I started out as a Nubian breeder. It was very easy for me to just focus on udders because nothing against Nubians. I love Nubians. But in my experience, it was very hard to get a lot of consistency and mammary quality. Um, you know, you could get the rear udder, but then you didn't have the fore udder. Or you get the fore udder, but then the rear udder was suspect. Or you could get a decent medial, but you'd have humongo um, six inch long teats. I mean, it just, it just seemed like I could never get all of it firing together at the same time. So I became very mammary system focused. And um, one thing that I found out early on with Alpines, I was really focusing on, on um, breeding to animals that had a lot of milk and a lot of height and width to that rear udder. But I didn't realize that I didn't have the rump structure to support that. And it took, um, actually, it took Todd Biddle at a show to set me aside and say, look, I want to point this out to you. And I think you need to work on this before you start working on these other points. And uh, my point is, don't, don't get so focused on improving one thing on your animals or one area of the scorecard. And I, and I see a lot of people just focusing on utter, but they forget that there are so many other things that have to go along with supporting that memory system. Um, in order to have a really complete yeah, balance. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that there. So, um, any other no, thoughts? No, I, I really don't have any with? there. Uh, I think moving right along, though, to mistakes with the barn, with, with kind of set up your, your things there. Um, Laura, I, I think this first point you can talk wholeheartedly about. Um, it sounds like you have lots of problems <laughs> with it. Oh, yeah. You know, there's an old saying, what is it? Uh, good fences make good neighbors. Um, good fences make life with dairy goats so much better. When I first got back into goats, I was a single mom. I was just doing it by myself. My kids were really young. So the property that I had had some areas of old woven wire fence. In some places, the fence was three feet high. In some places, it was normal size. Um I had fences with great big gaps at the corner posts and, and I ended up really Frankensteining a lot of stuff together. Um, what I learned over time is that those fences cause nothing but heartache and experimentals. If you have more than one breed. I can agree. And Alpines knowing Alpines, they're not the, um, they're pretty aggressive and hard on fences. Oh gosh. Yes. And, and you have to be willing to, to put that, um, 
fence maintenance in there too, because like I noticed um, my wonderful husband who for my birthday a few years ago, built a whole new fence along one side of my property. It was like an amazing gift. So that was a great birthday present. I just looked this evening when I was out with the goats, I need to go back through with a post driver and straighten up all those posts that those Alpines have stood against that fence, trying to get that tidbit on the other side. I just, I just did that today, actually, uh, when we were working in the barn and with the bucks too, because you know, those bucks are (laughs) crazy still, but it it doesn't matter if you're using cattle panels or maybe, um, some people use electric wire if they have pastures or um, or gates or whatnot. Really having a strong fence is really important to keeping your goats in, um, as well as keeping predators out. And one thing that I've learned over time about fences, if your goats don't ever learn that they can go over a fence, they're not going to try to go over that fence. Um, the goats that I have had, especially bucks, that maybe I didn't have good fences to begin with, and they learned how easy it is to go over it, they can go over cattle panels. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. The, the little buck, like the little guy we got from you, Cameron, he is the easiest buck to keep inside because he's never learned that he could get yes, out. Yes, because he was in two fences his entire life growing up. He was in a pen, in, inside a pen, because that's how <laughs> we have our, our barn set up uh, for kids. Right. Um, but being able to make sure you have strong fences is very important for goats. Um, and And... One thing about that is gates as well. I want to talk about this, and this is a, a personal philosophy of mine. Um, we have a lot of gates on our farm that swing uh, inward, meaning that when the goats line up to get their um, to leave the pen because they all want to get out, they trample on that spot, and it makes the pen really hard to open and when it opens inward. So I always advocate building gates outward for that reason, making sure they swing outward. I yes, would totally agree with you on that. that's uh yes. yes first yes when we got our new barn installed here for some reason the my dad was convinced that it would open um inward not outward so uh it, it's a mess there and also that along the lines hay feeders what how do you gonna do them because um, Laura I'm assuming you've you know done some Frankensteining with hay feeders too in the past correct or is that just us. And, and I don't think I'm the only one, Cameron, because if you go, if you go to Pinterest and put in hay feeders for goats, I kid you not, there's probably 2000 ideas of how to make, and they all, they all uh, claim that they are waste free hay feeders. If you ask my husband, he would tell you up front, there is no such thing. And I kind of, I kind of agree. It's goats are so bad at wasting hay so bad so um coming up with a, a hay feeder that is safe that has a minimum amount of waste and that is easy to use if you can find that to start out with you're going to avoid a lot of the mistakes that people make in trying yes, to cobble and, and one thing together. i will say about hay feeders and a little story here is um you know we used to feed round bales and we'll talk about round bales um and, and more hay sourcing uh, during management, during our next segment here, but, um, you know, my parents, we would put hay feeder, we would feed a round bale. We'd bring a gate over that and whatnot as well. Um, they're, they're terrible. I mean, it's really hard for those to get around the, uh, yeah, the round bales, they're no oh, fun for, for me, for us, at least us to do that. But setting up that easy, but it can be very, very, very hazardous for the goat. 
especially if they're wearing collars too. Well, and I'll share something. I used to keep those really nice, soft, woven nylon choked collars on my goats. Um, you know, they didn't rub the hair away from their necks. They didn't lose them. They looked pretty. It was so easy to just grab that collar and walk them around. And it was great until I had a hay feeder that was made out of um, cattle panels. And I went out in a very beautiful first freshening three-year-old. So obviously I waited three years to try to get this doe to be bred. Um, I found her hanging by that little tiny less than a dime sized loop on the end of her collar and um, that had gotten caught on the top of a cattle, pa- cattle panel and she was gone. You know, that's why I said the word safe with hay feeders. Just try to use the nicest quality, safest hay feeder that you can put together, whether it's a homemade one or a purchased one. There's lots of options out there. And this is something else I'd talk to other good yeah, people that's and see what works Getting for them. feedback from mentors like we talked about or looking at Pinterest is a great way there. Um, also, barn setup. Laura, let's let's dive into this because there's lots of different things we can talk about with barn setup here. Well, I think you are totally posed to talk about that today. Yeah, clean so, your barn out. And I know that you guys over the years have made some changes yes, in your barn we, setup. We have. So we uh, recently put up a new barn that was my dad's retirement present to himself. So my so he doesn't have to be in the house and bothering my mom um, with three pens in it. So we could have all of our does in one barn, um, which is really nice. So we have it set up and it's really, it's some things to consider here. Um, when you do set up a barn is what type of flooring do you want? Some people like concrete, some people like cement, some people like, or concrete cement are like the same thing. Um, some people like the dirt floors and, and laying lime down there. There's a lot of things to consider. I've found from my experience, I really prefer the, um, cement floors just a lot easier to clean. Um, but I, some people, as my fiance reminded me, um, you know, there are pastures tend to break down faster on cement uh, floors as well. There, and then you always need a more uh, bedding in that there. Um, but you need to consider when you're building a barn is not as having pens that are easy to clean, whether that's with a skid loader or a pitchfork. Um, you need pens that are configurable and very easy to reconfigure as things change. And then you also need to think about in your barn where you're going to water the goats, where you're going to feed the goats, and where you're going to put the hay for the goats. If you can come up with a setup for watering, feeding, and haying where you don't have to climb into the animals, you are going to save yes. so much time. With our so new configuration of our barn, we actually, uh, in the winter, it only takes us about 15 minutes to do chores. And we have... 45 goats here that's wonderful yeah not having that back back breaking labor of pitchforking yeah life became a lot easier more. with a skid loader <laughs> uh, and being able to use that use that skid loader we do I'm have sure. to use some hand scraping and and um that's that's great one pro tip as well i call it a pro tip because i think it's really cool it's automatic waterers if they're applicable you do have to do a little bit of work for those but automatic waterers save a bunch of time and you never have to worry about your goats um not having water unless the water is frozen so a question for you cameron with those automatic waters when you guys put those in did you notice an increase in milk yes production? but we also okay so we put them in 
this will be the first year we actually put them in um because it's the first year in the barn so i would say our milk records are a little higher um than last year i I would like to think we also had some other strange things that happened um last year as well that impacted our milk records that i'm not going to go into detail with um but we also put out water in the mineral tubes as mineral tubs that we have as well and we would find that they would actually drink more water out of the mineral tubes or tubs than the actual automatic waters and i think i think it's like a friendly like oh i know that's where the water is and whatnot so we're continuing to do that but when it gets you know frozen when when we actually start to see some normal weather for november we will um take those mineral tube tubs out we use mineral tubs very very easy and that that's another pro tip there if you can get mineral tubs they're relatively cheap generally you know cattle farmers just want to get rid of them with good power wash they make great waters you know, I think another mistake that people make is um, when they're figuring out how they're going to have their goats and where they're going to have them. Um, when you get that barn cleaned out, you have to have some place to put that manure. So, um, you know, think ahead because when you pile it and pile it and pile it, that can cause just as many problems as not removing it at all. Um you know, your goats might enjoy being up on Poop Mountain for a while, but eventually it's going to be really difficult not to take yes. over your whole um, pasture. So with poop finding someone to come spread it for you, we actually have a manure spreader. That's a, that's something that we do with it. There, and spread it on our back five acres. Um, we people come pick it up for their gardens as well. So maybe another opportunity for revenue there. But someplace for manure is really, really, really important because goats poop a lot. So what, yes, what else? Mistakes with what else? <laughs> um, I think one thing that we can consider is a, a different a, a different setup for your kids are versus where your milkers are. Yes, you know that is a problem that different man different management styles are going to have different issues. But I think when you have kids, whether you're dam raising them and just leaving them with their moms, or you're planning to separate them, you need to remember the fact that those kids have a really immature. Um, immune system and the more you can keep them away from the parasite load that even the best best maintained mature herd is going to have a parasite load of some kind Um, you know you've got to have a place to keep those kids warm dry clean and easy to uh, take care of not making the mistake of just thinking that they can just run alongside the rest of the herd and be just fine that's my thought on it yeah what do you think them it's something that we've never done before we like to um make sure all our animals are clean and we have a whole separate barn as laura as as we've talked about you know we have a a separate barn for that we've always had a separate barn since like 2003 um ever since we moved to this property here uh for kids and raising kids and whatnot so um that's that's just how we do it and that's something to consider um you know when you do have that you know, you gotta, you gotta remember that, that growing those kids, their health has to take a priority, which we're going to lean into a little bit here next. Let's just move on and talk about kid management. I think the first thing we need to talk about is being able to control pathogens with kids. Um, and I think, and the first thing that starts with that is coccidiosis oh, prevention, coccidia prevention. So every year I try to come up with 
something to focus on to improve my management or improve my herd. And a couple of years ago, I really started making an emphasis on growing kids and, and taking care of kids. And the number one thing that I think made a difference in my herd was actually paying attention to coccidia. You know, coccidia is something that every goat's going to have. Um, you don't want to totally eliminate that in your environment. I don't think there's any way that you can, but my goodness, I don't, I, I feel that there's no way the, the absolute worst thing that can happen to your kids is getting hit with coccidia. And yes, not being able I, to I get agree rid with you on that. It. And it's very important to start um, coccidia prevention at an early age. Uh, Laura, how do you handle your coccidia load there? You know, we've done a lot of different things over the years and, um, you know, we've tried CoRID, we've tried, um, I think it's Dimethox before. Um, several years ago, we started using Baycocks with our goats. Um, that's pretty difficult to get hold of. And um, this past year was extremely expensive, but it was very easy. The goats liked it and it was easy to dose and it seemed to do a good job. This year, because I couldn't get any Baycocks, I was looking at for something new. We used a product called Probac C for our dairy goats. And I have had the best, the best results with that this year of any year that we've grown kids. My kids have not had scours throughout the year at all. Not even, not even just once, which I thought was just amazing. Um, they grew well um, on the average. Wow. The same genetics were weighing 10 to 20 pounds more um at at six months of age than what they had done before so i was really happy with that um and it's it's a a nice smelling powder that you just put in their milk and you leave them on it from the time that they're about two weeks old until they're weaned and we use that for a job Um, what do you use it for years but one thing we found is that you know you treat for you treat for cockasidia and you maybe don't get the desired result and you keep treating for it. Um, One thing we started to do a lot of this year is analyzing stool samples. Um, If we don't think it's coccidia there. Um, So we've taken stool samples and then my my girlfriend will look under it under a microscope or fiance, excuse me, will look under the microscope there. um, And she will be able to tell us effectively give her recommendation um, on what what is the best course for treatment there. So that's a resource that we have. But if you don't know what's going on with your kids, a stool sample is a great way to help figure it out. And taking it to your local vet is great too because they're going to be able to help figure out or diagnose and treat it better than looking it up on the internet. Right. And you don't, you don't, I mean, these are medications that we're giving animals. So you don't want to just do a shot in the dark and think, you know, hope you're going to get it and maybe cause some other problems because maybe you medicated in a way that they didn't need or you gave them too much or, or other issues with that. So, you know, yeah, I definitely another think thing as well on that is, is training early. Um, Laura, I guess we can talk about this here. Do you give your kids a CDT before a CDNT before you um, start grain or, or what's your, what's your method there? I do. And I'll share a little bit of personal thing here and again there's lots of different ways to do different things um so one thing you should know i don't grow any of my own hay so i'm always at at risk for having different quality of hay in my area good and i think when you don't have a consistent 
supplier of your of whatever you're feeding your goats, whether it's grain or whether it's hay, you can run the risk of increasing your chance of enterotoxemia and overeaters. So several years back, I quit vaccinating. I quit using CD&T altogether. And um, the second year that we didn't vaccinate for that, I lost 14 does over the course of that year, 14 dozen bucks. There were some bucks in there. It was horrible. And these animals were everything from yearling milkers to a three-year-old to, um, you know, babies who it seemed like it was about at the time that they started um, being weaned and transitioning into uh, not being on milk anymore. It was just horrible. You know, we should have figured that out, I guess, because, oh, we're not vaccinating and, and we're losing these animals. But that's a long, a long story of saying that um, I'm pretty religious on vaccinating all of my kids. And since we went back to vaccinating, we haven't lost any since then. So that's a long answer to your yeah. question, Cameron. Yes, we always vaccinate our kids. Um, they get their first shot when we disbud that when we disbud them and tattoo them. And then they get their second shot a month later. Um, and all the does get a shot before they kid. So there's some passive immunity. So we'll just do we won't give well. PNT to what our milkers. My my fiance does. She's on a rigorous CDNT twice a year for the entire herd. Um, uh, we do only CDNT for the kids, and the CDNT um, we give generally. It's, it's really honestly whenever we remember to give it, but we'll do it before they start grain, and then we'll do it about a month later, like you stated. So, um, yeah, generally around that tattooing time, right. that's when we'll give them our first one. There, we generally generally tattoo pretty um in in april when easter is the saturday before easter where we will tattoo everyone that we can oh fun <laughs> that sounds like a great yeah, family bonding uh, no, time not, not really but along the lines of kids there one thing that we preach and talk about it, and it's a good way to prevent coccidia and keeping those parasites down is cleaning facilities for the kids laura how often do you clean your facilities with kids and and how stringent are you on that not as stringent yeah. as I should be. Over the years, we've come up with a method. When our when our babies are first born, they're in an enclosed barn, and we clean that we clean the pen out about every three days. Um, babies on milk, they're <laughs> they pee a lot, <laughs> so they're they're strong. It's pretty wet. Um, when they get older, and we move them to an outside pen, not quite as often there, but we make sure that their bedding's always you know dry and. Um, you know, we don't worry as much about ammonia and, and uh, things in there, but we start looking at parasites. And inevitably in Missouri in the springtime, you get those weeks of nothing but nonstop rain. And, and it's really hard to stay on top of it that way. But, you you know, you've got to come up with a way to keep them clean and dry and, and um, healthy uh, that it way. Was, so well, this year, what, what do you do, um, it was weekly, every Saturday morning. That was my dad's um, therapy in the barn, as he called it. Uh, cleaned ever, all the kids' pens out, and he did that um, probably starting in in March till about um, maybe June. So every every single Saturday, that was that was the thing he did. He cleaned everything yeah. out. Um, that's what he did in the morning. So that's how he um, spent spent his day. So um, dealing with the with the, the start of the pandemic. So, um, but generally, we like to clean it out seven to ten days. We that's 
kind of our range there will go. Two weeks is almost a little too um, much for us just because of the amount of kids that we will have on our farm. Um, and you, you said it right, that baby goats, when they're growing, they pee a lot. Yes, they do. And the ammonia can get to be pretty crazy. If you can't, the way I look at it, if I can't uh, sit in the pen and not have my eyes water, you know, it's, it's, it needs to be clean. <laughs> you want it, you want it to be nice and, and safe for those babies. And, and you don't want to run into pneumonia and those other things that come. Yeah. From I agree with you on that. What about plants? minerals? We don't do a lot for minerals, maybe a couple, maybe just sprinkle it in there. But Laura, what are your thoughts on minerals for kids? Well, I think, you know, just mineral, mineral okay. supplementation in general, not just with kids, but for mature does as well. I've not been, I'm not very good at that. I, I tend to forget about it. And then I'm like, Oh, I probably need to give minerals again. You know, um, Missouri doesn't happen to be in a selenium deficient area area. So that's not something that I have to worry about so much, but um, I really have tried over the past year to make an, make a weekly check of mineral feeders to make sure that they have a loose mineral in there. That's, that's balanced for goats. And um, I'm hoping that that's going to help me as far as uh you know, when they freshen that they're in a better mineral balance. I've had some does that have uh, kitted with quads and I think I've run into some um, issues with that because they just have had, had an imbalance and they've. Yeah. Just minerals are very important. With them, um, so. We used to raise the launches and um, some of the lines had specific copper deficiencies. So minerals are very important there. When we will give um, like a BOCI before they kid, we'll do like three kids, kegs, spa days where we'll, give them bosey and we'll, we'll do up their hooves and make them all look pretty for kidding um, with like trimming up the udders and whatnot, getting some of the long hair uh, off and taking off their beards because we want them to look ladylike. I do that too. The daughters think it's ridiculous, but I'm just like, if you're going to be a mom, you're going to get rid of the beard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> going right along our management decisions here. I think one thing we get to talk about is, is feed sources here, both on the hay side and the grain side. Um, and one thing I've noticed is when you feed lesser quality hay during the show season, it definitely shows. Yeah. And, and for nationals, what we like to do oh, is gosh, we'll, yes. we'll talk to our hay dealer and we'll like to get some last year's fifth cutting, you know, candy slap, you know, hay candy, slap some ranch dressing on that and, and really make them look good and start feeding that before the national show. That is, that is a goal that I've had this year. Um, you know, in Missouri at least, and I'm sure it's probably been this way for you. This has been a great hay year this year. So I was able to fill up, fill up my barn with a lot of really good third and fourth cutting hay, but I have a friend who's got 75 bales of that candy hay. They're hanging on to me. And uh, this is going to be the year that I'm going to hold yeah, so, on to that for show season, and especially for nationals. Yes, we are. Because exactly. I know we're going to have an One thing also happens is feeding <laughs> round bales. After we transitioned away from feeding round bales, we oh, have gosh. seen a huge increase in quality of not only our, our stuff looks better, but that people who bale round bales, and that's no offense to people that bale round bales, tend to put them in round bales because they're a little lower quality, in my opinion. And Laura, what's your thought on that? Yes. Um, the, my, my main hay guy that I've bought from for the past several years, he always does his first, his first cut is always done in round bales. So, um, he just doesn't even bother to put that, put that in, um, little squares and he puts everything else in little squares, but you're right. However, I've also yeah. been on that end where that's all you can find. 
it's it's sometimes it's hard to find um, square bales of yes. hay or square bales of hay that you can afford. You know, if you're lucky, you'll find somebody who's put up some top quality alfalfa in round bales. And we've had them before. Where we've sat that bale in my garage and just peeled off of it and forked it to them so that, you know, it's not getting rained on and it's not getting wasted. It's not the easiest thing to do in the world, but it's better than not having anything. But I agree. You know, if you have to switch to a lesser quality of hay during show season, it really does impact. And that is a huge mistake that I've made before. Yeah, round bales are, are are not the greatest. I've we've actually transitioned to big squares, um, and instead of the small squares, they come in bigger squares, and and we'll get those are three quarter tons, um, and and we love them, and our hay guy loves to put them up, so we we tend to feed a lot of those as well. Yeah, we'll flake them off, and we'll just how, them how off do you and, feed and them? Do then? that? Do you just flake we'll them off. A bunch of them in the barn and and whatnot. And actually, this we every three weeks now we have to go and get more more round or uh, big squares so that's kind of my job as well as just running up and getting hay for us from our hay guy there yeah one other thing here is it's, i think it's really important to have a good relationship with your feed supplier lord would, would you say you have a good relationship with your feed people I, I i've tried different feeds at different times and a few years ago i had a custom mix made which was amazing until yeah. hog season came around like where all the kids around here had show pigs and they were doing up a lot of hog feed and all of a sudden my beautiful clean bright looked like granola that i would eat molassesy um custom mix became this horrible powdery awful stuff that my goats would walk away from and wouldn't eat it so um over the years i've learned that for my situation mm -hmm using a prepackaged feed we feed purina um we feed purina 18 percent dairy parlor is what we feed and um you know i still wish i could go back to that custom mix but uh my feed guys they take good care of me um they ask you know hey it's about kidding season you ready for us to start ordering your kid feed and um they really think ahead and, and make sure that i've got we what I need. So, so i found that to uh, be helpful. a couple of years what ago uh, you, must Cameron? have been like in the early two, 2010s now we uh we were feeding custom mix we were um getting lower quality customer service from our guys and we actually switched feed sources um and then that year we actually decreased milk production um because so because of that we actually switched back and we feed a custom mix and this is probably the third or fourth highest custom mix seller they sell at the feed mill our feed mill local feed mill locally owned and, and whatnot and it, it's really great resource uh for the communities they serve but um we get it from there and they're very accessible to us because the feed the, the feed mix is called jabowski custom feed mix where they use our name along with it too and they always have it in stock because they, they sell so much of it um but having a relationship with your feed dealer um, because they have a nutritionist or because they're maybe switching up rations and balancing things there is it's critical and it's definitely a mistake um, that I see people buy because they just go to a tractor supply company and they go and buy, you know, whatever's on the shelf and, and whatnot. And that's just some feedback I give people. I agree that yes. it's a huge yep. mistake to not know what you're feeding and how it's going to work for your animals. I On that it's also a mistake to switch feed all the time. You, know, you really need to get some consistency in that because um, I've seen animals who have really yeah, not done well totally, totally with switching there. from feed to uh, feed. All looking the time. right along now, some other management things here. One thing I had in here is proper heat care. So applying a pre-dip and a post-dip 
on your on your does. Um, we actually don't do a pre dip, and I, I kind of wish we did. And it's something that as we look to 2021, it's something I want to implement more of pre dipping um, and just cleaning that teat surface. There, we've had some um, issues over the last couple of years with mastitis and flare ups and whatnot. So I, I think it's something that we really need to look at there. We don't pre-dip either, Cameron. Okay. Um, we do use milk check wipes on all the does. So I feel like that, you know, we do a good job of cleaning them, but um, we use milk check and um, wipes and yeah. then we use fight or yeah. fight back on all the does afterwards. Um, you know, I think there's, there might be better teat dips around to use for a post dip, but um, having three girls um, who've, moved through the herd and you know now they're all out of high school but especially when they were in high school and a lot of times chores got done between football games and basketball games and and other school activities if Mm. it doesn't ever get used it's not going to be an effective post dip so we've just found that for us that yeah we've used we've used fight back before and we're consistently so pretty frequently between iodine and fight back and and it's really whatever we can find there's a, a little bit of an elephant in the corner that um, you and I have talked about whether or not we <laughs> want to bring this up. So I'm going to shoot the moon and, and go ahead and bring it up. Probably one of the big pitfalls that you can avoid in making a mistake with is um, in health testing and biosecurity with your herd. So um, Cameron, I don't think you're old enough to remember when Correct. CAE was first kind of discovered with with dairy goats and um, we didn't know very much about it. We just knew it was something we didn't want. And um, I can remember what it was like back in the eighties going to shows and seeing consistently animals with golf ball sized knees and swollen hocks and hard udders that the physical signs of CAE that were just rampant in animals um, animals not reaching their potential, animals dying at a young age because of CAE. Yeah, for the we, most part. Praise, yeah. God, praise God, we don't see that anymore. For, for the most part, you know, once in a while it'll pop up. And I don't, I, I'm going to speak for both of us here, Cameron. Neither one of us want to make a comment, I don't feel, about whether or not anybody should keep an animal that has CAE because that's not a management decision that anybody can make for somebody else it would be wrong to get rid of every animal that tested positive to CAE. Um, There are too many valuable bloodlines and valuable, beautiful animals that um, may be carriers of that, or, you know, may may carry that disease, may have that disease for whatever reason. The mistake that I want people to avoid though, and I, I, you know, you can tell me if you agree or not, know what the status is in your herd and be upfront with it. Um, don't make the mistake of trusting what somebody says to you and not asking for proof. Um, you know, if somebody tells you, oh, I don't have a CAE problem in my herd, but they've never tested their herd and they don't, they don't have the results to show you. Yeah. I and that's something that proof before I just you take explained to someone work. today where they wanted to buy a mature milker. I explained our, our policy on that, which is available on our website. And, you know, we breeders will, if, if they want to go above and beyond as, as sellers, um, they might say, okay, we will, we'll, if you're interested, we will um, run the test for you. And then most sellers are okay with that. And, and, you know, it's just something that 
Um, we do as a convenience for them, but obviously they would have to pay for the test. Right. And, and, you know, again, not saying that somebody who has animals that are CAE positive, that they're in the wrong because they're not. Um, but it is wrong to misrepresent what you have. And so, you know, if you're looking to avoid mistakes, avoid the mistake of bringing a, a problem into your herd yes. that you're not prepared yeah, to yeah. manage and, and don't know how to go forward with that. You know, make make sure that you're being on, that people yeah, are being I honest with you and that you're being with honest that. with other people. In all seriousness, these are some of the common mistakes that we've seen or we've even made here. Um, and, and mistakes are bound to happen on your farm, but that's part of the learning process of, of running a farm. Um, and it's something that, you know, we all hopefully own up to as people, but these are just some common mistakes that we've seen. And we hope that they, you learn from the mistakes that we share with you guys. Right. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, I just wanted to point out, we're going to start publishing our podcast on Tuesday mornings. So um, we've heard from you guys that a lot of you like to listen to us while you're, while you're doing chores. So our goal is to try to have it done um, for your Tuesday morning chores, or if you're those really early chore people, maybe your Tuesday evening chores, but yeah. watch for us coming out on Tuesdays instead of on Mondays. All right. Next week, we're bringing on Cade. What Cockburn are we going to talk about? Cade's next little week, farm Cade. located in Southern Illinois. Cade is a, um, as a youth member, uh, he raises Nigerian dwarfs, and he built a business around his dairy goat project. So I'm really excited to talk a little bit um, of the business side and seeing how someone decided to profit off of their dairy goat uh, endeavors. And if you haven't met Cade, he is he's he's senior. I'm just senior kind of amazed that he's what 17? Is he 17? 16? Yeah, he's like amazing, and he has such such awesome knowledge, and he's just a lot of. Cameron and I would like to thank you for joining us for this episode of Goat Gab. Uh, We had some technical difficulties at the end that kind of garbled some of our segments in here, and we apologize for that. We're going to be working on that. Hopefully, uh, we'll have all that figured out by our next episode. But thanks for hanging with us. Um, You can find us on Facebook, and we invite you to send any questions or topic ideas to us through our Facebook page. And also, if you like our podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Anchor or wherever you listen to and invite your friends to join us each week. Have an awesome week and we'll catch you next Tuesday.